Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from LA to the UK. Today's September 10th. Welcome to episode 43. This week we're bringing you the second half of our interview with documentary filmmaker and Olympic College Bremerton digital filmmaking instructor Mark Evans. Mark's latest project, Clay Dream, debuted at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival, and he'll join us in a few minutes to tell us about his journey as an entrepreneur, teacher, and award-winning filmmaker. And if filmmaking is something you aspire to, then join us at the 2021 Seattle Film Summit. This premiere event is a series of interactive educational panels and workshops focused on connecting our local industry to L.A., New York, and the rest of the world. The summit is a hybrid event comprising classes, workshops, panels, film screenings, pitch sessions, award ceremonies, and networking opportunities. And it's not too late to get tickets. There are events happening tonight, virtually Friday, September 10th, and live at the Hyatt Regency Lake Washington in Redmond tomorrow, Saturday the 11th. Visit SeattleFilmSummit.com for more info and to purchase tickets, also linked in the show notes. And we'll be on site tomorrow bringing you special interviews and all the action from inside the summit, so stay tuned to our social media pages for all the latest. It's going to be a busy weekend for Heilman and Haver, and it's a busy weekend for our local theaters as well. For all our local listeners, we're happy to announce that there are two shows opening in Kitsap County today, Friday, September 10th, at Western Washington Center for the Arts. It's the Gilbert and Sullivan favorite, The Pirates of Penzance, directed and choreographed by our friends Dan Estes and Rebecca Ewan. The show runs through October 3rd, and you can get your tickets at wwca.us. And there's more singing from the stage happening at Bremerton Community Theater, also opening tonight side by side by Sondheim, a musical review of the early career of legendary lyricist and composer Stephen Sondheim. This Tony Award-winning musical is a perfect introduction to the work of a contemporary master and a must for diehard fans. The show runs through September 26th, and you can get more info and tickets at bctshows.com. Side by side by Sondheim director Rana Tan and musical director and accompanist Gwen Adams were kind enough to sit down with Matt and me for a preview of the show on our latest episode of In the Mix. Find it on our YouTube channel and also post it on Facebook. This week's cocktail is the Sondheim Sour, guaranteed to quench your thirst and wet your whistle for plenty of singing along to your Broadway favorites. And speaking of favorites, favorite Christmas movies that is, join us next week, Friday, September 17th, when we'll be celebrating our one-year anniversary as a show with a very special interview with actress Carolyn Grimes. At age six, Carolyn played the role of Zuzu Bailey in the 1946 Frank Capra classic It's a Wonderful Life. Her childhood film career spanned 16 movies, but she's best remembered for her touching scenes with the brilliant James Stewart as her father, George Bailey. Fall may be just around the corner, but it's never too early for It's a Wonderful Life, and we're excited for part of our interview with Carolyn to play this Christmas at the historic Roxy Theater's holiday event featuring our friend Jeremy Arnold from TCM. Details to come, so stay up to date on our Facebook and Twitter and tune in next week for a preview as we interview Zuzu herself, Carolyn Grimes. And now we're pleased to bring you the second half of our interview with documentary filmmaker, entrepreneur, and educator Mark Evans. Mark's most recent documentary, Clay Dream, premiered at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival to critical acclaim. His debut feature film, The Glamour and the Squalor, won top prize at film festivals around the world before being acquired by Red Bull Media House. He's represented by XYZ Talent Management, and in addition to film, Mark has produced commercials for clients including the Smithsonian Institute, U.S. Navy, the Government of Haiti, and Clinton Global Initiative. With his wife Angela and son Jude, Mark leads The McCall, a boutique creative studio creating film, books, photography, and other unclassifiable works such as the Cowboy Bear Dinner Party Experience. Mark holds an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts and a bachelor's degree in business administration from Washington State University. 
He lives and works in Bremerton, Washington, where he teaches digital filmmaking at Olympic College. Your most recent project, which you mentioned before, Clay Dream, celebrates the career of Will Vinton, an Oscar Emmy winning clay animator, who's known as the father of, of claymation. And I think, you know, Matt and I grew up a few years apart, but still we, we've had experience with California raisins and the, and the Christmas, you know, claymation things, plenty of claymation throughout the years. So has this been something that's been percolating uh, with you for a while? Back, you know, maybe since the 80s or, or something no, like that? No, I definitely was uh, into that work. Um, I, I loved the California Raisins. I remember the Noid. I, uh, we watched Claymation Christmas Celebration when I was growing up. But I never, I wasn't thinking, you know, even early, even when I was doing the Haiti Project or, or certainly starting the Glamour and the Squalor, I wasn't thinking, oh, someday I want to do this Will Benton film. That came around as I was wrapping up the Glamour and the Squalor, again, looking for, for new projects. I read an article called how the father of claymation lost his company to a rapper named chili t which um you know if you, when the movie comes out when, you, when people see the movie they'll understand what that means and will's kind of rise and fall and how what happens to his company and there is a rapper named chili t that is involved in that story and so when i read that it really felt like and it was so well written and so well researched and the article was really well structured like a documentary I, immediately i was like this this reads like a film and then having my the nostalgia there, whereas the glamour and the squalor was this radio DJ that helped break all the bands that I listened to as a kid. This is a story about a guy that you know created a lot of characters that I really loved as a kid. So there was that nostalgia factor, but really just had this great built-in story. There, there's a lot of surprising conflict and uh, drama in the story. And it was we, we kind of when we were pitching it originally, we were pitching it as kind of like the the Mister Rogers documentary. Um, uh, once you be oh, would you be my neighbor mm-hmm. with social network the david fincher movie about facebook like that's kind of that's how we were pitching this thing so yeah so it was, reading that it was, it was the first time i thought oh this again this could be this could be a great movie and it was very it was pretty similar with will and with marco as far as the process of getting them on board you know it, i got excited about that story i think i reached out to i found an email address for will i think i reached out that day that i read it because i was just excited and his wife, who I think it said it was his assistant, wrote back saying, yeah, I'll meet with you, but he's not really interested in doing a documentary. And I thought, oh, okay, okay you know, he'll meet with me. So we, we had a trip planned in the Northwest because we were still living in San Diego at the time and um, met with him in Portland, had like a three-hour meeting at Starbucks. And I thought we totally hit it off. And I was like, oh, cool. This, I think this is going to happen. And then I followed up with him like a week later and he's like, yeah, I'm not really interested in doing a documentary, but, but we can keep talking, you know? So I was like, all right, I guess we'll keep talking. He's, he's a cool guy, you know, I like him and foot in the door. Yeah. And so we just kept talking for, you know, six months, every few weeks or whatever. And ultimately he came around to the idea and, and yeah. And, and, and that was that. Do you think a lot of it comes down to, to trust? You've got to just kind of take that time. If there's any kind of controversy, especially uh, they've just got to, they, they got to know that you're se- as serious as, as they see this time in their life. Yeah, it, uh, absolutely. So I think that just takes a little while. And then, mm-hmm. and then with Will, there was also this trust factor that continued as we were making it because he was really hesitant to make a, fi- I think he was hesitant, hesitant to make the film that I ended up making, but as the years went on, he felt more comfortable allowing me to make that film and what he gave me access to there's um there's so so chili t the rapper is the son of uh phil knight the nike founder right and um 
this plays a big part in the movie is Will and Phil Knight butting heads um, over Will Vinton Studios. And there's this great deposition footage that I kind of use throughout the film as the through line. And I didn't even know about this footage until at least two years into making the film. And I was over at Will's and he just casually was like, hey, did I give you the deposition? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, the, is there like transcripts of it? And he's like, oh no, we shot it. I, I hired a crew to shoot the deposition. <laughs> And so I was like, oh no. And so he gave me this box of beta tapes and, and I remember, you know, I had to get it digitized at the lab when I got it. I was like, oh, we really have something now. Cause I knew that I was going to tell that side of the story but I didn't know how. But when we started, pre, you know, two years previously he knew I was going to tell that side of the story but he was just like, he didn't want it to like he didn't want the movie to be about that. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's a big part of it but it's not about that. And I think he was just, uh, he was hesitant for a lot of things that maybe would get too personal. And like, and we ended up, you know, going through a lot of these things. So it just, it just took a little while. And then I think he just realized like, you know, if anybody's going to see the movie and, you know, he wants the, the legacy of the work and the people that made the work to be celebrated. But if we don't make the best movie with the best story possible, nobody's, nobody's going to see it. And then what's the point anyway. So I think, and he realizes that, I mean, I think he, I think he saw the choices that I was making and realized that if he wasn't the subject, if he wasn't so close, he would have been making those same choices as a, as a director. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it took probably two years. I mean, I think we became friendly pretty quickly, but it took at least two years before he was fully comfortable giving me everything that he had. Wow. Well, people are certainly seeing it. It was uh, debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. And something I thought was, was pretty cool is that this is the, we're coming up on obviously the 20th uh, anniversary of September 11th. And this was a film festival founded by Robert De Niro, as most people know, uh, Jane Rosenthal and Craig Hatkoff in 2002, specifically to spur the economic recovery of lower Manhattan after 9-11. So what did it mean to you to have your film screened at such an auspicious festival on such a big year? Yeah, I mean, it was super cool. It was the, and it was the 20th anniversary of the festival. Um, so they were, they were celebrating that. And I mean, Tribeca was the festival that I really wanted to premiere the film at. Mm-hmm. We, I, I wanted to premiere the glamour and the squalor there and, and it didn't get in. And, um, you know, films don't get into festivals or do get in festivals for all kinds of different reasons. Like you learn this, the festival game is there's so many factors that go into it that it's pretty crazy, but I, w- I was hoping that we could premiere the film there. So, and, and it took, we had to kind of wait for months. Like there was a programmer that their senior programmer that I knew from, she used to be at a different festival and loved the glamour and the squalor was a huge champion of it, programmed it at two other festivals that she used to work for. So then she ended up being a programmer at Tribeca. So I sent her the film and immediately she, she watched it within a week and was like, Oh my God, I love it. You know, there's other programmers too, but it's, but it's looking very good. And then like, she kept saying that, but then there were some, there were some, some issues. Um, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but because of the Phil Knight thing um, that they're, you know, it, it's not always just like, Oh, we love the film let's program it because we like it. Um, there's other factors at play. And so kind of had to wait for a little while, but so that maybe made it a little bit more sweeter though. And we finally did get that, you know, that acceptance. And it, and it was also a relief of like, okay, cool. Cause now, cause once you have a premiere date, then everything starts, then it's like, okay, we're going to premiere at this major festival. We'll get some press out of that premiere. You know, we hired a PR company. So we got, you know, we got reviewed and everything. And then we can take that story of the fact that it's premiering at a festival that is highly curated and we have these reviews, then we can sell that story with our sales agent to the distributors. So we know that like once you have a festival and if you especially you don't have to have a major festival, but it certainly helps to have that as your premiere. 
So like I said, it was really exciting and then also just kind of a relief for a lot of reasons as well. When are you going to be able to see Clay Dream? You said within the next few weeks? Uh... Uh, probably not the next few weeks other than at a festival that might be virtual, which that's been the big, that's been the interesting thing this year with festivals is, you know, they're all back. Some of them, uh, like Tribeca, went to like a hybrid where it was part in person, part virtual. But the cool thing about the virtual component is, you know, it used to be, at, let's say Tribeca, you had to be in New York to watch the films, to buy a pass to go to Tribeca. But this year, anybody in the country could have bought a pass to watch all the films at Tribeca. So that kind of, for, for the festival, it opens them up to a larger audience and then also just for your film where people can see it. So for instance, I know the Port Townsend Film Festival, which is next month, it, it's a good, really good local festival. It's been around for a while now. They're playing it um, and it, what they're doing it virtually. So I imagine that'll probably be available. I don't know if it's the whole country, but I think it might be. Um, so people can watch it as it's part of some of these festivals that are virtual, but we're still finalizing, we're still buttoning up the distribution plan. So there's a couple of distributors that we're still in talks with. Um, so at some point over the next couple of weeks, we'll be making a decision on that. And then it's kind of up to them and us as far as like when it will actually come out. So I would imagine sometime this year, but we might do, you know, there might be a limited theatrical run in some major cities and you know, that usually comes first and then it'll go to rent or buy. And then it'll go to streaming and then, you know, like DVD, Blu-ray being the last thing. So, um, so I would, I would say to people listening that want to see it, keep your, you know, eyes out, eyes peeled for a virtual festival where you might be able to buy a pass or buy a ticket to the show. And then hopefully in the next, you know, in the next couple of months, sometimes it'll be more widely available. Yeah. You said Port Townsend Film Festival, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We'll look that up and link it in the show notes because uh, that'll be a great opportunity for us to see it too. Yeah, for sure. And that's in the next couple of weeks you said opening? It's in September. Yeah. I don't know the okay. actual date. I think it's a little bit mid to later September. Perfect. We'll look that up. So you mentioned with, with distribution and there's so many outlets right now and, and Matt and I have been kind of following the streaming versus theater thing since COVID started and, and how that's going to look after that. And you mentioned distributors. How much are you involved with, you know, that whole distribution process and or, or, or do you hand that off to a distributor who does all the negotiations as far as how many times it has to be seen? I mean, all those little things that yeah. you deal with. Do you do you keep your fingers in that or is that? I mean, I, I'm involved with it, but uh, and so for the Glamour and the Squalor, I did work with a sales rep. So that that's kind of like you have you have a sales rep that sells the film to a distributor. And so they, they negotiate, they work all the deals and everything. So I had one for, for the Glamour and the Squalor. We ended, our biggest deal for that one was actually the Red Bull Media House, which, you know, Red Bull Energy Drink, they've got their own, you know, production distribution side too. So we programmed it there and, you know, then it, you know, it was still on iTunes and Amazon to rent and buy and all that first. And then Red Bull took it for a lot of territories internationally. So that, that was an interesting one because that came, even though we shopped it around, that came, they reached out to me, that, that movie premiered at SIF, Seattle International Film Festival. And they saw it, they saw it there, um, somebody did, and they reached out to me and that ended up being the deal that we negotiated. And they made you know, an initial offer. I think we ended up getting probably double the money that they first offered. So our, our sales rep was instrumental in getting more money out of them. But you know, we, we've talked to a lot of people, but that was just kind of, that doesn't happen a lot where like where, who you end up going with is just you know, kind of hits you up out of the blue. And I don't even know if they would have been on our list because they were brand new at the time. We didn't know that they were like acquiring films. So, and then for Clay Dream, XYZ Films is a great indie film company out of LA. They had a kind of a hit a couple of years ago with the film called Mandy with Nick Cage. 
that did really well. And they're, they started as kind of more like the horror genre type thing, but have really expanded beyond that and are a great kind of an art house company. They got into documentary just a couple of years ago, uh, Tamir Ardone, who's my producer, he kind of his baby, his passion project was a film called Framing John DeLorean about John DeLorean, the car maker. And it's a, it's a hybrid documentary that stars Alec Baldwin playing John DeLorean. Um, and, and, but it's more of a documentary. What's kind of cool is like Alec Baldwin is like learning in the film. You see him kind of learning about how to play John DeLorean. Um, and that's kind of how some of the information. So there's some reenacted scenes and, and there's documentary, you know, interviews and, and archive footage and all that. So they put that film out a couple of years ago and Tamir's been really ramping up their, uh, the, the XYZ slate for documentaries. So they came on board um, about two years ago, probably on Clay Dream. And they've been great partners. Um, and they're also a sales agency as well, too. So they're a production company and they are also one of the probably top five sales agencies. Um, Submarine is probably the most like widely known um, sales agency. But anyway, so, so yeah, so you work with the sales agency and then they go shop it. They do all those. So I'm not involved in like the day-to-day of that, but they'll just bring me kind of, you know, once every you know week or two, they'll kind of update me with what's going on. Well, this has been quite an education on the filmmaking side of things. And the other side of your life, along with entrepreneur, filmmaker, documentarian, is as an educator. Mm-hmm. You grew up in the Tri-Cities, like you said, moved to San Diego with your wife in 2010, back to Bremerton 2019. What drew you to the area? And how did you find your way to Olympic College, which is where we found you, through Tim Hay? Yeah. He said, yeah, yeah. you got to get this yeah. guy on. <laughs> so my, my wife's family has a place out on Hood Canal, kind of in between like Belfair and Union. They've had it since like the fifties, you know, the, the property. So, um, and I, you know, I met my wife first day, freshman year of college, 1999. Um, so I've been going out there for a long time. We've been going out there for a long time together and living in San Diego every year, usually twice a year we would do, we would drive, we would make the big road trip to, and go to, to go to the canal house, go to the Hood canal house for a couple of weeks. And it was 2018. It just, well, 2016, 17, 18, it was just getting harder and harder to leave every time. And we've got both of us, most of our family is in this area and a lot of friends in this area. And we just really wanted to get back here, back to Washington State, probably Western Washington. And my, my wife's from Olympia. Bremerton, though, we didn't know anything about. We, we had uh, one family of friends here who's Chris, my, you know, my next door neighbor I was talking about that uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal, Chris and Betsy. But we didn't know much about Bremerton, except we knew them. And I remember I texted Chris, you know, a couple of years ago and I'm like, hey, what's the deal with Bremerton? Like, you know, it's obviously very cheap. <laughs> cost, of, you know, cost of living is very enticing because I because I had this epiphany in San Diego. I was like, I know how to make way more money. I know how we can overnight make way more money. We can spend a lot less by living in a way cheaper place. Yep. <laughs> and um, so, so, uh, and we were again already kind of missing Washington, but that's, but it's like Seattle, you know, going to Seattle, it's like, well, that's not really going to put us in any better position than San Diego. And, you know, my wife is a photographer, like we're both in the arts and, you know, and we're, we make our own projects. It's, you know, um, we, and, and we love to do it, but it's like, it's hard, it's hard out there. So we wanted to find somewhere where the cost of living was a lot cheaper and Bremerton's been interesting. Like there's, you know, I feel like it's like, you know, one step forward, two steps back and stuff as far as like the development, but there are definitely things happening and, and it's evident by the property values that have gone up in the past two years, which we, we got in at a, at a good time for sure. But yeah, we, but you know, we knew Bremerton is the place where when we were at the hood canal house, we would go get on the ferry to go to Seattle. And, um, we just kind of thought about like, we're like, okay, we can buy a nice house that, you know, is three times less than 
a starter home in San Diego. I mean, it was depressing looking at the places in San Diego that were way outside of our budget that we, we couldn't afford and, and they were crap, you know? So we've been, we've been super happy. We've been really happy here. And part of the whole plan of going, of coming to Bremerton was um, I found out that Olympic College had a, a, a film program and my brother had just started at, at BCFA and was, we were kind of talking about the teaching side of things. And that's kind of what sealed it for me. I was like, oh, and, and so I didn't have a job there or anything. I didn't have the master's yet, but I, I reached out to Tim before I even probably started the program and just kind of introduced myself as, as somebody that, um, you know, here's, here's what I'm doing. We're planning on moving to Bremerton. I'm getting my master's and, um, and kept in touch with Tim and, you know, he's great. And we, you know, we hit it off right away and it just kind of worked out. Like, so as soon as I uh, actually, I think I ended up starting before I had the official degree because I was my, the VCFA shared that I was on track that I would be graduating like six months from now. So they were able to get that through. And, you know, so they were hiring at the right time and, uh, and it's been great. I mean, I, I love to teach, you know, one of the things outside of the school that I want to do too is come is have projects that maybe I'm not the director, but I can like get going for up and coming directors that want to do it. So I just, I just really get excited about, you know, helping others and, and teaching. So it's been, it's been a good fit and being able to have that employment as well too while I work on my projects it's it's kind of the perfect uh it's kind of the perfect setup yeah we know Matt and I know firsthand the Bremerton arts community is definitely headed in the right direction with the revitalization of the downtown the work um we've been involved with uh with the historic Roxy Theater and Quincy Square that's coming up so it it is definitely a place to be and it's only going to uh, to get better and plus with and and maybe you can speak to this uh, we talked to Tim a little bit about this the the advent of and popularization of digital, you know, filmmaking, you can do things. You don't have to be in California to make a film. You don't have to be in New York. You can be all these places and, and still have access to good equipment. And uh, it must make that a lot easier as a filmmaker to be somewhere where maybe it's not, you know, like LA where, where the price of yeah. living is. Yeah, you, you, can, you can be anywhere. I mean, if you're in LA or New York, you're definitely going to have more access to talented crew and professionals and all that. But you know, I went from San Diego to Bremerton and I, in San Diego, at least, you know, I can take the train up to LA, but and especially with COVID with everybody getting so used to zoom, you know, you, you can have your meetings, you can be, you know, talking, working with production companies or agents or whatever in LA. And it's very, very easy. Um, so then, but then you've got colleges like Olympic college with the digital filmmaking program that is producing talent here. So you can definitely work with people and I'll be working with people, you know, students that graduate, I'll, I would be happy to work with people. I take on interns that are still part of the program. Part of one of their requirements is to, to have an internship. So every quarter I'll have an intern and that's been great. That's been super helpful for me to have somebody that can be like an assistant editor or, or whatever it may be. And then the other great thing about the digital filmmaking program is it might not even be for somebody that necessarily wants to make films and have a career in filmmaking. They can get that degree and go work any job that's out there. That's going to be a huge asset that they know how to shoot video, edit video. Every company is putting out video, whether it's on social media or for their own website or what it is. So it's just, it's just a, a skill that really everybody should have. And if, and if you're talented with that, there's going to be a lot of opportunities, whether, whether or not you want to like make films, which some people do that are in the program, but, but you don't have to be like, oh, I want to be a filmmaker. And you certainly don't have to move, you know, once you have that degree, you don't have to move to LA or New York. I mean, even Seattle, if you, you can go to Seattle and there's a great scene there, or you could stay right here in Bremerton like I do. And, and, and you can make it work as well too. 
Well, you've covered uh, some of the unique uh, things about the OC film program. What other advice do you have for our listeners, young and old? Like myself, I, I fully intend to take some directing classes uh, in the next couple of quarters. What advice do you have for people who are interested in maybe pursuing uh, filmmaking, uh, specifically documentary? Are there any challenges specific to documentary that, um, that you share with your students? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> um, but <laughs> maybe, maybe a difference between documentary and, and say, like you said, like a, a, a standard feature type film. Maybe it's the access you talked about earlier. Well, yeah, the access. And I think, you know, one big difference is when you're making a narrative film, let's say everything comes together and you've got the financing and you've got everything in place, you're going to have a shooting schedule that's, you know, 15 to 50 days or whatever it is, right? And you and you know, okay, we're going to shoot these days. We've got all these locations. It's a lot more, you can, you can do a lot more planning of how things are going to be. Whereas in documentary, you're relying on, if, you, if you're doing something that is interview-based, you're going to be relying on a lot of different schedules. You're going to not know what those locations are going to be a lot. A lot. I, I do prefer to shoot my interviews at the subject's location, which doesn't always turn out great. Sometimes you get there and you're like, oh God, I don't really know where we're going to shoot this and make it look really good. Usually we find a way, but that, that can be a, a challenge. So you've just got to be way more flexible in documentary because the schedules are, you know, as much as you try to have a set schedule, it just is always changing. Now, I do like to try to schedule, like, if I'm going to do B-roll and reenactments, I do try to schedule that like a narrative film where it's like, okay, let's try to do this within two, these two weeks right here. Um, so there are things you can do. But, um, I mean, the, the advice, though, I, I think that I is just to get started, you know, is just to, just to start, not overthink it. You know, it, if I would have not got started, it, I probably would have overthought it and be like, oh, it's just too daunting and maybe not have gotten into it but I was naive enough to just kind of jump right in. And, but I still have to remind myself of that sometimes like on clay dream, I, I got started. I was doing a lot of interviews, but I remember one day I had this epiphany. I was like, you know, I'd probably been working on it for like a year and had big interviews with Will and some other people, but then I wasn't doing anything with it. And I just like, well, what am I doing here? Like, I'm not really trying to raise money. Like I'm not talking to investors. Like I'm just kind of one day I'm going to make this movie, but I'm like, well, what, what, what am I doing though? And so I, even though I kind of had told myself that I probably wasn't going to do another Kickstarter after doing one for the glamour and the squalor, I just realized it's like, well, why? Okay. There, if I want to make this movie and I don't really know at the time how to, how to go after investors um, or what investors would be interested in this, then what excuse do I have to not take advantage of this platform that's out there with, with Kickstarter in that case? So we raised 37,000 on Kickstarter and that kind of allowed me, I hired an assistant editor and we really started working with the material. And, um, but, but again, like that, it, it was just kind of one day I was like, I just had that realization of like, yeah, I did the interviews, but I'm just kind of going through the motions. Like I'm not actually doing anything with this and there's not going to be a movie that's just kind of made out of thin air unless I'm the one doing it. So, um, so yeah, I guess the advice would be just to, just to stop, waiting, you know, stop procrastinating and just, just do it. What a great way to start, dip your toe in the water. Uh, and by taking a few classes at OC, I know I, as an alumni, I would have killed for there to have been a filmmaking program back. Oh boy, I won't tell you how long ago I was there. <laughs> well, you know, and, and a lot of the classes are available too. To, you don't have to be trying to get your bachelor's in digital filmmaking, which there is a digital filmmaking bachelor's degree. But um, one of the classes I'll be teaching this fall is digital filmmaking one, and that'll be some people that are going to be getting into the program and want to get their four-year degree. But it'll also be a lot of students, to, like an elective, that just want to learn a little bit more about how to use the cameras and how to edit. We'll, we'll, I'll teach 
student, like we'll make a short film. Every student will make a short film in that class. So they'll shoot, they'll edit, they'll figure out how to do all that. And then also, um, I believe we're st- there's emails going back and forth today to figure out like, is this starting in the fall? I think it's going to a documentary certificate. So for the first time, we're going to be offering cool. documentary specific program as well too, that I'll be teaching nice. those classes. So in the fall, it'll be just documentary one, which is uh, development and pre-production. So let's come up with an idea for a project. Let's develop it. Let's do all the necessary pre-production to, to get you set up. And then the next quarter, the students will be able to take that project into uh, production. And then the next quarter, it will be post-production and distribution. So over the course of three quarters, they'll have a film and they'll have uh, a certificate in documentary filmmaking. And, that, and, that, and I'll say too, that's one of the other great things about Olympic College is that it is very hands-on. It's not, there's some um, you know lecturing for sure, but it's mostly just very hands-on. You're working on projects, you're working with the equipment. And that's not true with a lot of the film schools that are out there. That it's it's a lot of just, you know learning about films from the 1950s. <laughs> Theory, yeah. No, that's great. Uh, so excited uh, for that program and uh, watch for one or both of us in some of your upcoming classes, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, this, is, this has been an, an education, like Matt said. Uh, before we let you go, how can we and your listeners uh, learn more about and keep up to date with what's going on in the world, in the filmmaking world of Mark Evans? God, I, you know, I wish I was better at social media. Um, I think the only place I have an account is Twitter, which I don't often tweet. When Clay, like, I, if there's big news with Clay Dream, for instance, I'll put something out on there, but I'm not super active. But I think that's at Mark underscore Evans, I believe. <laughs> you might have to. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll dig it up and, and leave yeah. it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I wish I was better at it. My, my wife runs a, an Instagram for the Macaw. And again, it's small, you know, so that's our family business that is a produ- production company on Clay Dream and will continue to be a production company on these future projects. And then we put out the two, but kind of, we decided like, let's do all of our creative projects under this one umbrella, but the macaw.studio is our website, which um, we try to put stuff on there as it's happening, but it's just, I don't know. I think we get caught up in just like doing the the projects and, and, and I'm not saying that this is like a good thing. It's probably like, we can probably reach a lot more people if we were more active on social media, but we just, neither one of us really like it, you know, and actually kind of have a dislike to it. It's a necessary evil. Yeah. And could be a could be a full-time job. Well, you guys got a lot of stuff going on over at the Macaw, which is the Macaw.studio. Uh, something that we're going to have to check out ourselves, I was telling Greg, is one of your books you guys have out, Booze by Bear. Yeah. 25 Cocktails for Seasonal Living. So we'll have to get our hands on a copy of that and then get you on one of our In the Mix segments. Let's do it. Yeah. I was going to say, one of my favorite cocktails in there is, uh, well, I thought it was called Pernod. Do, do you guys, are you guys familiar with the aperitif, the mm-hmm. French aperitif? It's spelled P-E-R-N-O-D, but when we were in France, so we went to France, uh, to Annecy for, we had the international premiere of Clay Dream there, and I ordered one, and they called it Pernod, so I, mean, I don't know, like, how we pronounce it here, but Greg, do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do, and I I was calling it uh, Pernod as well, I think, so. It was actually, we were in Paris, and I, yeah, I ordered it as a Pernod, and he, and he didn't, like, you know, look at me weird or anything, he was just like, Pernod? I was like, oh, yeah. But we had a similar discussion with when we were doing the Vesper Martini, whether it's Lilit Blanc or Lille. It turns out yeah. it's Lilit. You know, That's but you look at L-I-L-L-E-T. it, you think it's L L E T. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So we're just going to have to have you on. We'll make that cocktail and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, the correct pronunciation for a lot of these well known yes. cocktails. We've been, ha- you know, we're just butchering all this time as Americans. <laughs> you fill up a couple of hours with that, I'm sure. There you go. <laughs> Well, until then, Mark, uh, best of luck with your teaching. Best of luck with your projects. We're excited to see Clay Dream. 
hopefully soon and uh, keep us updated on everything and appreciate your time. We know you're a busy guy. Happy to do it, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. right. Take care. Thank you again to our guest, Mark Evans. You can find out more about Mark and his family's other creative works at www.themacaw.studio. Check out the Port Townsend Film Festival for a chance to see Mark's latest documentary, Clay Dream, at ptfilmfest.com. Join us next week, Friday, September 17th, as we celebrate our one-year anniversary with a very special interview with actress Carolyn Grimes, who played Zuzu Bailey in the 1946 Frank Capra classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. Tell them to visit heilmanandhaver.com and tune in on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. You can drop us a message on Facebook and Twitter and check out photos of all of Greg's delicious cocktails and all the fun we're having on Instagram. As always, thank you wherever you are for supporting your local theater and for joining us here on Heilman & Haver. 